Coming up on today's show, Canada Revenue Agency touts itself as world-class, but guess what? Kind of just average. Rachel Notley has no energy game. We'll chat with Markham Hislop. Vladimir Zelensky's media savvy has been on display throughout the conflict. We'll also hear from a caller today whose mother-in-law was taken for $8,000. It happens more than you might think. Right now, we're going to talk about the Canada Revenue Agency, something on the minds of many Canadians right now. It is tax season. Time to get the income tax done. Um, I don't know. Like I said, maybe I'm just a biased Canadian and I'm very smug and self-assured in my Canadianness. that it's, it seems to me, if you're talking about taxation agencies around the world, Canada would be good. We'd be, we'd be right at the front of the line. We'd be world class. We'd be good at that, right? Wrong. Canada Revenue Agency bills itself as a world-class tax agency. That's what they tell us, but um, they're not. It's okay. At best. Average, really. At least those are the findings of the parliamentary budget officer who recently looked into the CRA's performance. And joining us now, we have Eve Giroux, parliamentary budget officer. Uh, Eve, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, I mean, your study was released this week. First of all, was it surprising to you as a Canadian? Because I don't know, maybe, like I say, maybe it's just my Canadian bias that I would assume we would be world leaders on this file. Well, uh, it it was a bit surprising to me as well, because I've worked at the CRA for a couple of years before becoming the parliamentary budget officer. And there's lots of very good, dedicated people working there who take their job at heart and are very proud of the work they do. So it was a bit of a surprise because they they mean well. And we decided to look at uh, at the performance compared to international peers, because there's lots of interest among politicians for providing more resources to the CRA in order to collect more taxes without increasing tax rates. So to ensure that the taxes that are owed are indeed paid as a a way of reducing the deficit or funding additional expenses. So that's why we decided to look at that. Yeah, like you say, you compared it against, I think, 11 other countries, right? Over 21 different categories. So just give us an idea of sort of the parameters that you set for the comparisons. So we decided to look at countries that have a comparable tax system, and it's very difficult to find comparable tax systems, uh, and similar structures when it comes to the tax system, not similar but not identical because you can't find that, and countries that are also that you can compare the tax administration with compared to CRA, for example, tax collection agencies that are not uh, combined with the customs agencies. We eliminated that. Okay. We also eliminated small countries of less than a million people. You, we didn't want to compare ourselves to Luxembourg, for example, or, or Malta. So there were a couple of criteria that we set out so that we have a, a good basis on which to compare. So we included countries like France, um, the UK, Norway, Finland, the U.S., if I not uh, already said that. So there were about a dozen or so countries, I think 11 countries, with which we compared the CRA. And overall, generally speaking, your findings indicate that the CRA is just a, it's a pretty average agency, right? Well, I'd say it's good. It's not excellent, and it's not mediocre, right. which is the good news. But as you said, as Canadians, we expect uh, ourselves and our institutions to be top-notch and that's not yet the case with CRA based on several metrics. So there's, it suggests there's room for improvement. Uh, let's talk about a couple of those metrics. First of all, I think the one that most people would be interested in is in terms of um, how much do we spend 
to get back what we need to collect? Like, how many dollars does it cost us to collect the dollars that we're owed? Are we uh, are we cost efficient compared to other countries? We're we're average compared to other countries. Okay. So that's that's what I mean by average. Average is a a big uh, a big uh, a big thing. So we're slightly at above uh, close. Well, not close to, but between about seventy dollars per collected by dollars spent on operating expenditures at the CRA. And the average is slightly above $100. So okay. it can it can be due to a variety of factors. So if you look at countries such as Finland and Norway, they have high taxation rates. So it's obviously a bit easier to collect higher dollars per, uh, bigger amounts per dollar of operating expenditures in their tax agencies. So it's not easy to compare internationally, but we are slightly below average. Okay. What do we do well? What areas can we look at and say, hey, Canada Revenue Agency does a really nice job of this? They do well in collecting GST compared compared to other countries, that is. So they're better at the value of additional assessments uh, and the number of audits conducted per auditor on the value-added tax. So that's the GST and the harmonized sales tax right. in provinces that do have sat, such a tax. So they're, they're good on, on the value-added and GST front, both in the number uh, of audits and the amounts they collect when they do these additional audits. It doesn't mean there's no room for improvement, but they're better than other countries, comparatively speaking. When we identify individuals or companies or whatever the case may be that have outstanding taxes that aren't paying their fair share or whatever the case may be, do we do a good job of actually collecting the money that we're owed or where do we stack up on that file? Uh, We do a worse job than other countries when it comes to the cost of collecting amounts that are owed. So uh, for those that pay on time, no big issue, obviously. But those that are hesitant, let's say, to pay their uh, fair share to the taxman, we seem to be spending more money to collect that for per dollar that we end up collecting. And that may be due to a number of factors. Maybe we are more aggressive in collecting these amounts because it's easy to just not pursue those that don't pay. But if you do decide to pursue them, it costs something. So it could be that, but other countries seem to be doing better at spending less to collect the amounts that are owed. So we, we seem to be doing worse than average when it comes to cost the cost of collecting the amounts that are owed. Interesting. Okay. Are we are we at least smart about how we go about it? Eve? Like, I imagine if you've got somebody with an outstanding bill of $100,000 and then you've got, you know, somebody who just, you know, their T4s out of wagon, they owe a couple hundred bucks or something like that. Do we focus on the biggest bang for our buck? Do we at least sort of have some, you know, a process in place where we make sure we're focused on the biggest gains? Uh, that was not the focus of the report, but based on my experience yeah. working there, yes, the CRA seems to be very smart about that. And that may explain why, in part, it's expensive to go it's more expensive than in other countries, because those that owe large amounts of money, and we're talking hundreds of thousands, they tend to fight back and drag the process through the courts and, and oppose and appeals and use the court process as much as they can, which may be why it's driving up the cost of collecting these amounts. Interesting. Interesting. Eve, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, sir. That is Eve Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, who recently spent some time taking a look at Canada Re- uh, Revenue Agency and uh, their performance.
as you know, earlier this week, the federal government unveiled their new national climate plan, right? Uh, and provided a, a rare example of agreement among the two major parties in Alberta. Jason Nixon, the environment minister with the UCP government, called it insane. Said it would be very devastating to the economy across the country and in Alberta, calling it insane. Rachel Nolley, the NDP opposition leader, came out and said, this is a fantasy. It's not attainable. It's not achievable. It's a fantasy. Okay, so not a lot of support for, and specifically we're talking about the oil and gas industry because the federal government talked about a lot of other sectors as well, but specifically oil and gas industry, 42% reduction from current levels. Fantasy and insane. Um, what does it tell us about Rachel Notley and her her plans? Her, does she have a plan, I guess is the question, when it comes to oil and gas? We're going to chat with Markham Hislop an energy journalist and the publisher of Energy News. Uh, Markham, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. Now, of course, this is a fastball right over the fat part of the plate for Jason Kenney and his cabinet. Hand-delivered opportunity to rail against Ottawa, attacking Alberta again. You know how it works. We've, we've seen it happen. Perfect for them. Uh, so you expect the response you heard from Jason Nixon. But notly, um, my take is she kind of found herself caught between a rock and a hard place on this one, sort of wrong-footed, and where's the, where's the safe space for her? Do you think that's fair? Well, I think that I think it is fair, and and there's no doubt. You know, there's a poll came out uh, today, for instance, from Angus Reid that shows that Jason Kenney is very, very unpopular. Only 30% of Albertans approve of his performance, but the NDP and the UCP are virtually uh, tied at around 40% for voter uh, voting intention. So I, there's no doubt that she feels uh, a lot of pressure on that front, and and that she maybe had to out Kenny Kenny on this issue yeah. in order to make points with the, I get that. But uh, my argument here in the column I wrote, where I said that she has no energy game, is this was a moment. This had the real feeling of a real moment for Alberta and for the Alberta oil and gas industry. Uh, I remember after the uh, uh, election in 2019, the federal election, I wrote uh, that the uh, Ottawa was coming for Alberta that eventually there was going to be a big fight over emissions reductions. I thought it would come sooner, frankly, but here it was. And and Notley had the opportunity to position herself differently than Kenny, but still be positive, to say, hey, you know what? Yes, this is a challenge. 81 megatons, by 81 megatons a year by 2030. This is tough, but you know what? We can do it. And maybe here are some examples of ways that we can do it. And she dropped the ball. So she had an opportunity to position herself as, quote unquote, a defender of Alberta, which is the role that Jason Kenney has taken on and wears every right. single day, uh, but do it in a slightly different way. Is that what you're saying? She can still try and appease both sides of this argument? Yes. And and there are ways to do it. I mean, this idea that 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 uh, reducing oil and gas emissions and let's remember, Oil and gas is 26% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. It's the biggest single emitter, and Alberta all by itself is the far and away the most single biggest emitting province. I mean, this eventually, uh, you know, Canada is waking up to the fact that it has an Alberta problem on this issue. And there is, there's no way to make this go away. This is a big issue. The world is committed to it. The federal government is committed to it. And it's going to happen. So the question becomes, how do we make it happen in a way that works to the benefit of Alberta and to the benefit of the industry? And there are all kinds of ideas out there. And she didn't have any of them. 
Well, that's the thing, Mark. I mean, we're going back. I mean, it's not like she's a rookie in politics in Alberta, for God's sake. She's been around a long time. She's been premier. And this was a knock on her when she was premier as well, is that she didn't understand energy. At least that's what we heard from a lot of people inside energy. She wasn't on the same page as they were. Um, she said a lot of the right things, but it just didn't seem to translate. So, um, you know, where are we now? I mean, at this point, you think she'd develop some sort of strategy, some sort of policy that makes sense. Um, is it moving too fast? Are things changing too quickly? Or is it just something that she can't seem to wrap her arms around? It's the latter. And let me explain why. We need to go back to the 2015 election uh, when she became premier to understand it. So the NDP were not expecting to be elected in 2015. And they had some, you know, energy and, and, and climate planks in their platform, but they really weren't well developed at all. And so what she did, and they, and furthermore, they didn't have a lot of horsepower in their caucus when it comes to energy and climate. You know, Shannon Phillips was probably the, the best of, of the bunch in their caucus. So what they did, and they, this was actually a really good uh, process that they followed when they were with the NDP was government. What they would do is they would get together commissions and committees, like the one that Andrew Leach headed up on climate consultations, and they would they, the experts would go out with their committees and do consultations and come up with a report that provided really good policy advice. And then the Notley government would take that advice and they would put them into, you know, they would develop uh, policy and regulations around them. And I interviewed, I don't know how many experts, you know, economists and so on, who said, look, this is a good way to do policy. The, the policy they came up with was really good. It was needed at the time. It was well-designed. Uh, you can think of the climate leadership plan, the uh, the uh, partial upgrading of bitumen uh, program, the petrochemical program. I mean, some of those were kept by by the Kenny government because they were just good policy. But then, then along came the 2019 election, and Jason Kenny had a really good energy narrative: jobs, pipelines, and uh, and the economy. And it really caught the uh, the. Now I should point out a lot of it was was built on either uh, distorted or inaccuracies. It wasn't a, but it was a good narrative. It was the messaging, a good story. yeah. Yeah, the messaging was terrific. Uh, Rachel Notley had nothing. I mean, literally nothing. I remember during that, that election campaign, I went to press releases, press conferences that she did. I went to her rallies, and energy got almost no attention. And it was a huge political mistake because, of course, Albertans were really anxious about the economy and, and, and where energy was going, and she didn't address it. And she lost a big, big time in part because she didn't have an energy narrative. Fast forward three years, and her party has done almost nothing. I mean, they've got some, some generic kind of you know, uh, party platforms or policy papers on things like hydrogen and geothermal, and, you know, the kind of standard stuff, but it's not well-developed. They haven't got a voice. She has the, really her, her, her uh, energy game, her ability to talk a narrative, yeah. to explain policies is no better. It hasn't advanced one iota from where she was in 2015 to where she is today. And that's why I say she has no energy game. And you can't, you can't be premier, you can't be an opposition leader in Alberta and not have energy game. Well, exactly, exactly. And, you know, you make a great point in terms of you have to have it. And you know what, Markham, she's on the clock. I mean, I think like you mentioned earlier, the latest polling shows that, okay, Jason Kenney may have his own popularity issues, but uh, that massive lead and, you know, the fundraising and everything else that the NDP was enjoying for so long seems to be eroding. UCP is certainly not out of this. The election is a year away. She's on the clock here. She better come up with something. 
Well, you know what? I've taken a lot of heat over the last couple of days from NDP partisans in Alberta for my column, and I, I expected that. I mean, sure. what, that, that was expected. But it would, it, you would be surprised at the number of high-profile New Democrats who have contacted me privately, because they don't want to say this publicly, and said, you know what? Yes, this is tough, but you're accurate. Yeah. You got it right. This is exactly the case. And I think that the NDP brain trust in Alberta has got to take Notley aside and say, look, you, this is a problem. This is a problem heading into the election. It was a problem in the last election. You have to address this. I don't see any indication that Ms. Notley is going to learn from this. So I, I'm not optimistic, and I, and I think this is a big missed opportunity. Mark, last one, and then I'll let you go. How does the federal political landscape affect what goes on? Okay, now the federal NDP are not the provincial NDP. I understand that. But Jason Kenney is now calling it Rachel Notley and, and the NDP Liberal Alliance at the federal level. I mean, he's tying them all together with a big bow. Um, that's another albatross that she drags around. Well, it absolutely is, and not least, or sorry, Kenny's done a brilliant job of that over the last uh, three or four years. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago it was the Notley Trudeau Alliance, yeah. and you know, I mean, this has been a talking point for the UCP and Kenny for a long time. But there is, well, there was an opportunity here, a missed opportunity for Notley to to actually align herself with the industry because there are lots of folks in the industry who say, yeah, we can do this. You know, yet just yesterday, I interviewed the Pemba Institute about a report they put out two weeks ago, and they actually showed a pathway for how to cut 103 megatons a year uh, of emissions from the oil and gas industry by 2030. There's new technologies all over the place. Like there's a company called in Calgary called Acceloware that makes that's piloting a, a downhole RF heater. It's like microwaving bitumen. You no longer need to burn natural gas. To steam and they're working with uh, oil oil fans companies on this uh, demonstration project. There's lots and lots of things happening that she could have aligned herself with to differentiate herself from from uh, from Kenny and at the same time be positive and and not be direct you know to tie herself to to Trudeau. Right. So you know this knee jerk reaction I think was the absolute worst response that she could have had. Interesting take. Uh, Markham, always a, a great discussion. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Shay. Take care. You bet. That's Markham Hislop, who is, uh, I guess we've had on the show before and will again. He's an energy journalist, um, publisher of Energy News. And I think he makes a really good point. You know, no matter what, and, th- and I think, you know, this is a, has been an existential struggle for um, Rachel Notley is she knows that the oil and gas industry is so vitally important to Alberta. It's out of step with what some other NDP thinking is, and she's tried to align it and bring it all together into a place that works, and it's been a struggle. Chances are, if you think about this, uh, it's very unlikely you'd ever heard of, of Volodymyr Zelensky before the invasion of Ukraine, but I'll bet you know who he is now. You've heard of him now. Um, He's addressed parliaments. He's addressed world leaders almost every day since war broke out in his country. Even more than that, he's had a a really dominating social media presence, and, and it's worked. He's winning the media war, if nothing else, hands down, head and shoulders. Um, Why? What's he doing that's been so effective? We're going to chat with George Melnick now, who is a professor emeritus of communication, media, and film at the University of Calgary. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Let's contrast the two 
um, I guess, leaders of the warring countries here, with Zelensky and Putin on the other side. And hands down, right? I mean, Zelensky has won the, like I say, the media war. I mean, it's not even close, is it? No, it's not even close. But the the real issue becomes uh, maybe Putin doesn't care. He's not trying to win the media war in the West. What he's trying to do is win the media war in Russia. Yeah. That's that's the other aspect here. When you take a look at this, um, they're aimed at different audiences, right? Zelensky definitely is positioning it not only for the people of Ukraine, but for a global audience. Exactly. Uh, because uh, he needs that audience. He needs those other countries. He needs the support of the international community. And Putin doesn't need that. So everything that Putin is doing is to project what to the Russian people? Well, what he's trying to to say is that, look, this is no big deal. This isn't a war. This is just a special military operation. Very limited little thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're not being affected in any substantial way. You know, no one's bombing you. No cruise missiles are hitting our cities. Uh, I'm in control here. I know what I'm doing. You're not going to be affected negatively. Uh, Just uh, stick with me and everything will be okay. That's the message he's trying to give to his own people because he has control of the media completely. Zelensky, on the other hand, like you say, is just wading into the global media ecosystem and knocking it out of the park. What's he doing so well and what is his goal in doing what he's doing? Well, I think he does it well uh, because uh, I, I think there's one aspect, one very important aspect. He doesn't come out of the uh, oligarchical elite in, in, in Ukraine that used to produce previous presidents. Okay? He came out from left field. He came from being a comedian and a television actor. Yes. That was, and people knew him because of his presence on television. Okay? So that's, he doesn't represent the old guard. He represents a new face. Okay? So, uh, and he carries that responsibility very seriously. So um, what, what happens is that when he, he talks, he's talking out of that uh, sense of building a new future, building a, a future without uh, being uh, uh, controlled by the, the political elite of his country. Okay? He, he, he presented himself in his television show about having, a, having become a president yeah. of Ukraine. He, he presented himself as representing the people. And I think he really accepts that. And that's the role that he's playing. Yeah, and he sort of had that built-in image before he even got started. Great point. Um, And the way that he's doing it, I mean, for somebody like me who's been in broadcasting for a very, very long time, I know there are certain things that are done because they work, because they're effective. That's how effective communication is done, especially on video. And he's tapping into a lot of those very common things that you see, even on the nightly news sometimes, right? The way you you look, the backdrop, all that sort of stuff. He's contrasting it from what you might expect. He's doing a great job there as well. That's right. So, um, but what you have to, but it's not um, an artificially created right. atmosphere, right? This, this is not uh, 
a television studio set that he's, he's in. This is his real life in a city which is under attack, right? So, so it's not it's not something that has been contrived. It's the way he's living his existence at the moment. The the place he speaks from is a real place that he uses. Um, for example, uh, I read in the media today that yesterday he gave his nightly video address to the Ukrainian nation. Okay, and he did it standing outside the presidential offices okay but the presidential offices i mean so he's in a real place okay the presidential offices are very dimly lit because yes. they don't want to be a target right since he's in them sometimes um so uh, so what you have here is that people have a sense of of a reality that comes through him it's just not an actor's words okay there's something that that he can convey by where he stands, where he sits, what he says, how he says it, how he dresses. All those things communicate certain aspects to his audience. You mentioned how he dresses. There's a very well-known economist in the United States who got just absolutely ravaged on social media because he put out a tweet saying, why doesn't the guy wear a suit? You know, if I'm going to address um, a joint session of Congress on video link or the House of Commons in Canada, put on a suit. He's sitting there in an army-issued T-shirt. Well, he's yeah. doing that for a very good reason, right? Exactly. He's doing it for a good reason because he's uh, the president of a country at, at war, but not the president of a country that is at war, which is itself safe. In other words, it's not the way someone, for example, in Poland or in France, uh, you know, or any other place, when your country is under attack, when 20 or 25 percent is already occupied, uh, when the city that you're in uh, gets hit regularly, okay, with some form of bombardment and things are destroyed, um, you can't go around walking in a suit which yeah. basically says business as usual. And that's why Putin wears a suit. Putin is wearing a suit. He doesn't change, like... Our country is at war. I have to put on my military uniform the way Zelensky does, because his message is completely different. Putin's message is that nothing has changed. We are not at war. Everything is just fine. Business as usual is continuing. If Zelensky appeared in a suit, you know, it would be completely out of context. It would completely be phony. It would be and as if he denied the war in his country even existed. And, and Professor, that, that word phony, um, that I think of everything else that we've talked about here today, that is the key takeaway. If you are inauthentic or if you are phony and you want to be a communicator, you failed. It will not work. Audiences can smell that a mile away and they hate it, right? You need to be authentic. Right. No, uh, and I think one of the fascinating things, okay, so presidential uh, figures everywhere in the world, including our prime minister and so forth, have speech writers, right? Sure. I mean, they, they, they don't write their own speeches. But look at Zelensky's situation. He speaks to the nation every single day in a video broadcast, every single day. And I, I don't believe that it's just a whole bunch of little gnomes that are sitting there writing his speeches for him, right? Yeah. He's come up with some incredible, uh, authentic statements. For example, the whole world knows that famous rebuff that he gave to uh, uh, Biden. Uh, 
Yeah. You know, when Biden said at the beginning of the war, believing that Ukraine would be crushed within days, look, I'll get you out of uh, Kiev, right? Yeah. He, he told him that. And he, what, what Biden was doing was pulling a, a Kabul, an Afghanistan thing that we saw happen just a year ago in August, right? When, when the president of that country just flipped right out and so forth. So, um, and what did he say in response? You don't script that kind of line. He said, exactly. I, you know, I need ammo. I don't need a ride. I mean, that, that goes down. That's a historic statement that's appeared all over the world, right? And then last night, for example, I read in the media that in that video address I mentioned to you earlier, uh, he's quoted as saying, uh, if we really are fighting for freedom in defense of democracy together, then we have a right to demand help at this difficult turning point. And he said, this is a quotable quote that goes down in history. Freedom should not should be armed no worse than tyranny. Okay, so that's a, a spontaneous sense of who I am. I'm a man representing freedom, okay, and the other guy is representing tyranny. And if you don't help me, tyranny's going to win. You're picking a side, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, done, he's done an amazing job. Uh, Professor, unfortunately, we're out of time, but a great conversation. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, me too. Thank you very much, sir. Bye-bye. Uh, that's George Melnick, who is a professor emeritus of communication, media, and film at the University of Calgary. Try and get Eddie in, in Calgary. Hello, Eddie. You're on the air. Hi, Shay. Hi. I'd like to change the uh, direction here for a second and just uh, speak about an uh, uh, ongoing scam that's happening here in Calgary. Okay. It's the uh, grandchild in peril scam. Where random, oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, long story short, I'm not going into it because I think everybody knows it anyway. Uh, my mother-in-law got hosed for 8K. Oh, in, in wow. Yeah, she was called Tuesday morning at 8.30. Uh, guys crying, saying, Grandma, I didn't do it, whatever. And she, of course, right away, oh, oh I know you didn't, I know you didn't. So then this guy pretending to be a cop gets on and says, yeah, well, you need to go get uh, this bail money. Well, they wanted 15000 So she got in the cab. She never goes anywhere. Yeah. So she went to the bank, uh, took five grand out at the uh, teller, the, the person, then went to the instant teller, took out another three, and headed back home. Well, in the meantime, uh, I guess it flagged. And my wife got a call from the bank because we're kind of looking after her, her sure. finances, whatever. And they said someone took eight grand in cash out. So I, I was at home. So my wife calls me, says, go over to my mom's and, and find out what's going on. So I, I got there uh, probably a little bit after 12 noon. And I said to her, someone's been taking money out of your account. She says, I did. And I'm like, well, why? She said, I can't tell you. So anyway, I had gotten to her house 10 minutes too late. The guy had already shown up, taken the eight grand and said, you know, we'll we'll make this work. Um, The strange thing about that is, well, when when he was telling her to get the money, he told her to tell the bank people that she's doing home improvements because, you know, because hang on, because Eddie, don't banks have a policy? A lot of them, where if a senior citizen is coming in and getting a bunch of cash, they're supposed to tell somebody, right? They do, 
and they they did. They eventually called my wife, but you know, through you know, just the amount of time it took us to get the information and, and get over there, it had already, you know, water on, under the bridge kind of thing. Oh man! So, so what do you do now? Yeah, it, it's it's gone. Uh, we we've preached to her before about don't answering the phone, but uh, another strange thing. I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but on the weekend before Tuesday, a couple days before, she got a, a strange random call from a woman who didn't identify herself. Just said, "I'm I'm living in the neighborhood. I live close to you. Can I come over for a visit?" Mother-in-law not wanting to be rude or anything. And she doesn't know this woman. She says, sure, oh my come, over, come over for a visit. So that almost sounds like, you know, they're, they're fishing around trying to find someone who's gullible. If they're going to let a stranger into their house for a visit, yeah, then yeah. They'll, they'll probably fall for this thing. So just if anyone gets a call like that where their grandkid is in trouble and the cop is telling them, get the money, tell them you're doing home renovations, and... You know, they're just trying to cover their backside any way they can to make it legit, right? Yeah, that's so. So the money's gone, Eddie. That's it. There's nothing anybody oh, can yeah, do, right? Yeah. As soon as we went to the the police, uh, the officer sat my mother-in-law down and said, "I'm sorry this happened to you, but you realize you're not getting this money back." She doesn't have a video doorbell or anything like that, no, or maybe or we, none of the neighbors do. No, we checked the neighbors, uh, but. His camera was pointing in the opposite direction, oh. I think, of where this guy walked up. And and he didn't park in front of the house. He, he parked. He was smart like enough a, to not do that. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, man, they know what they're doing. They I, know yeah, what they're these doing. These guys, how, how bad do you want to just get your... I want to get my hands on this guy, Eddie. I yeah. can't imagine how you're feeling. Well, you know, when I realized I was like 10 minutes late, like even if I could have seen the guy coming down the, the steps and yeah because because she has no visitors right no no one comes around her really and uh yeah it could have got a license plate or something so but. like did the cops like i mean i'm sure this guy this guy isn't a one-off I mean, this is a racket that this guy runs i'm sure so if oh, yeah. can, can she give a, a description to the police where they're saying you know what that's the same description description we got last week and maybe put a case against this guy Unfortunately, she's 85 years yeah, old. Yeah. She's starting to fade. And, I mean, we were even having trouble getting facts out of her. But uh, I tell you, when I, I went over to see her and asked her what was going on, she was adamant. She was not telling me what was what was happening. She said, I'm taking care of it. It's, it's all good. And the fact, the, the weird thing is, my my son is 29 years old. He's married. Yeah, so, yeah. If he's in trouble, he's got his wife. I mean, his his mom and dad are not going to ground him for getting in trouble with the police when he's 29 years old. But so they've probably got a whole script that they go off. They probably scare the hell out of her and say, if you tell anybody what's going on here, that's it. Yep. We're locking this kid up. He's not getting out. I mean, they probably have a whole strategy in place to make sure that she, you know, she does what they want her to do. Yep. And I, I can just see her going to the bank and coming back in the cab and she's very emotional so she was probably crying the whole time oh, and uh yeah it, like right away they just got right to her right away with hearing this this boy on the phone crying thinking it's her grandson what what do you what, what's a normal grandparent gonna do well, sure, gonna yeah. all over backwards to try and help you out right yeah absolutely so th- thankfully it's it's only eight could have been worse wish it was better 
but yeah, I'm sorry that happened. That is awful. I, I, it just, it makes me, it makes me so angry. Like, there's just some. I mean, you. This person went to this 85 year old woman's house, knowing he's talked to her enough to know that he can rip her off for eight grand, and still is that despicable, that cold hearted, that disgusting enough to take the eight thousand dollars cash out of that lady's hands. You, sir, are a vomit, and I hope you get what's coming. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.